Are you a worldly Christian? You are in the eyes of some if you dance, if you drink, if you gamble, if you play cards. In the eyes of others, if you are politically active and socially active and they consider you a worldly Christian. And then there are others who go to an extreme. Uh, they say that a Christian woman is worldly if she wears makeup, if she wears a dress where the hemline is above the knee, or if she wears a bikini as opposed to a one-piece bathing suit. I remember getting a letter, handwritten letter, on eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. It was over 10 pages long. And the letter was all about a Christian athlete uh, running in, quote, panties. And they were referring to my daughter. I guess they wanted her to run in bloomers or run in sweats or whatever. It is interesting to find out what people consider worldly and what is worldliness. Now, are you a worldly Christian is not a trivial question. Uh, it is an important question in light of the three verses that I just read. John addresses the matter of worldliness. Uh, he talks about what it means to love the world. And so if we want our walk with God to be what it should be, then we really need to pay attention to these verses. So I want to invite you to join me as we discuss the subject, forbidden love. Forbidden love. Earlier in this chapter, John talked about the love commandment, how you and I as Christians have the responsibility to love one another. But now he talks about the forbidden commandment. And that is that we as Christians are not to love the world. And so let's consider what John has to say about this forbidden love. I want you to note that in the first part of verse 15, we have the command against loving the world. This is technically the first command that John issues in this letter. Now, he's been telling us to do certain things, but never commanding. Now, for the very first time, John issues a command, a mandate. Now, something that the readers must do. And the command is issued to every Christian. The last time we looked at 1 John, John talked about these benefits of being a part of the family of God. And when you think about the family of God, everyone is a little child who has a relationship with God the Father. But John also mentioned that there are those who are young men and those who are fathers. 
But when John gives his command, he's not singling out the young Christians. But no, he's addressing every Christian. He's addressing the Christian who preaches behind the pulpit to the Christian who is sitting in the pew. Uh, we, We should not think that this command only is relevant to those who are new in the Christian faith. No, every Christian is to hear and obey this command. It's for everyone, whether you've been a Christian for four months or if you've been a Christian for 40 years. The command about loving the world is to you. And the command is against loving the world in general. John says, do not love the world. But then he goes on and points out that the command is loving against loving the world in particular. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Now, now this command, if you're familiar with the Bible, even if you're not really familiar with the Bible, this command is startling. For John says, do not love the world, when the most famous verse in all the Bible, and we know what that is, they hold up signs at football games, and they put John 3.16. And what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. But here is the same person who wrote those words now saying, do not love the world. So which is it? God loves the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But now John is saying, do not love the world. And the only way you can understand what John is saying, you got to know what he means by the word world. He's not talking about the world of creation. That is the beautiful world that God created. In six days. Neither is he talking about the world of mankind. In John 3.16, that's what it's being spoken of when it says, For God so loved the world, that is, God so loved mankind, that he gave his one-of-a-kind son. But John is not using the word world in that way. When he talks about the world, he's talking about a world system. An organized, structured system. Kind of like when we talk about the world of sports. And there are many things that fall under that umbrella. So when John says, don't love the world, he's talking about an organized, structured system. And I think the best way to really appreciate what John means by the world is when you come to the very end of his book in 1 John 5, 19, he tells us that the whole world is in the power of the evil one. And the picture, did I say it right? (laughs) That's an inside joke between my wife and the other person who didn't show up today. But, 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 The idea is when you read that verse, that verse shows us that Satan, the evil one, is holding in his arms a baby 
And that baby is the world system. So, so there's a relationship between the world system and Satan. He's the head of it. He energizes it. That world system is made up of unbelievers who have rejected Jesus Christ. And even further, that world system has values and beliefs and practices that leave God out. And John is saying, don't love that world system that is headed by Satan, that has values and beliefs and practices that leave God out. Don't love the world as a whole. Don't love the world in its parts. And John is not alone in this message. When he commands, don't love the world or the things in the world, there are other writers of New Testament who say the same thing. James in chapter 1, verse 27 says, keep yourself unspotted, unstained from the world. And every time I read that verse, I think I've shared with you before, it reminds me when I was teaching in the seminary, we would go to take a discipleship lab to eat barbecue. And we would have on our shirts and ties. And we're trying to eat this juicy barbecue filled with sauce. And the goal was what? Eat the barbecue, but keep your shirt unspotted and unstained by the barbecue sauce. And what James is saying, when you live in this world, and you must live in this world, even though you're not to have the world in you, but make sure that the world doesn't stain you, that the world doesn't spot you, that you don't have the barbecue sauce of the world on your life. And then James goes on and saying in chapter 4, verse 4, don't be a friend of the world. That doesn't mean we don't love unsaved people, that we're not friends with unsaved people. He's talking about the world system that is headed by Satan and has these values and beliefs that leave God out. Don't be a friend of that world system. And Paul, when he writes his letter in Romans 12, verse 2, says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be squeezed into the mold of the world. And so John commands against loving the world in whole or in its parts. But why? Why shouldn't I love the world? John's counsel that's found in the rest of our text provides the answer. John gives us wisdom. He gives us insight, reasons why you and I, as Christians, must obey the command to not love the world. Why, why we must make sure that we are not worldly Christians. And John's initial counsel is that loving the world is incompatible with loving God the Father. Loving the world system does not fit with loving God. 
It's an impossibility in John's mind. It's like trying to go north-south at the same time. Can't do it. It's like going east-west at the same time. You can't do it. And John is saying, you can't love the world and love God at the same time. Now, we might think we can do it, but John says, oh, no, that is not the case. And that's why he says very clearly in the last part of verse 15, if anyone loves the world. Now, now he's not pointing fingers. He's not taking his finger and pointing at my wife or taking my finger and pointing at somebody else. He's speaking in generality. He's just simply saying anyone. In other words, if the shoe fits, wear it. If anyone loves the world, if anyone does the very thing that John has commanded not to do, if there's anyone like that, then John says the love of the Father, the love toward God is not in that person. That is, there's no speck, there's no trace of love toward God in that person who is loving the world. Now, that's strong language, but that's biblical language. That's what the word God said, that if you are loving the world or the things in the world, then the love toward God is not in you. Can't find it on the inside of you. It's not a part of your life. And so you can understand why John gives this counsel. He says, don't go the route of trying to go north, south, east, west by loving the world and think at the same time you can love God. That's impossible. Those two things are mutually exclusive. It cannot happen at all. And John goes on with more counsel. He continues by declaring that everything in the world originates from the world and not from God the Father. So he's kind of zeroing in. He said, don't love the world, nor the things in the world. And now he's saying, look, everything, no exceptions, everything that's in the world system, He's not talking about the world of creation, the world of mankind, but that world system that's headed by Satan. Everything in that world system originates, comes from, not God the Father, but from the world. If I could give you the Reader's Digest version of verse 16, there's certain words that I would cut out, but I would simply say that the verse says all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Did you hear that? All, everything in the world is not from the Father, God the Father, but it is from the world. And so what am I doing? 
loving the things in the world if they don't come from God the Father? If God the Father has nothing at all to do with these things that make up the world, what am I doing? Having affection, having an attraction, having a devotion to a world system that leaves God out. So that when it comes to everything that makes up that world system, God has nothing at all to do with. That's what John is trying to get across to us. It doesn't make any sense. He's trying to give us some counsel. He says, look, you shouldn't love the world or the things in the world because everything, every last thing in the world, it it comes from the world and it does not come from God. He does not have anything to do with it at all. Now, I want to add back the words in verse 16 that I left out because John is going to tell us about all that is in the world. He's going to tell us about what this world system consists of. So he says, all that is in the world. And then he defines what he's saying. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes in the boastful pride of life. John is in his office. He's sitting down in his chair. He's seeking to counsel Christians about not loving the world. And as he's counseling us, he points his finger at a file cabinet. And that file cabinet has three drawers. But when you look at that file cabinet, it refers to all that is in the world. All that is in the world is captured by that file cabinet. Three drawers. And John opens the first drawer. And the name on that drawer, as he pulls it out, is the lust of the flesh. And in that drawer, there are many folders You know how file cabinets are, stuffed with stuff, with stuff. And John opens the drawer, the top drawer that says the lust of the flesh. And in there are a bunch of folders. And these folders represent, again, things that are in the world. But how do those things get in the world? They got into the world through the lust of the flesh. Now, I know you hear the word lust and you think of something sexual. But when John uses lust, he's not talking about anything sexual. He's just talking about a strong desire. He's talking about a passion, powerful passion. And you can have a strong desire for something sinful or you can have a strong desire for something good. The Apostle Paul had a strong desire to leave this world and to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm in a a strait. I have a choice. But if it were left up to me, my desire would be to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that desire was a lust, but not a sinful lust. John talks about these strong desires. 
strong cravings and passions that are produced by what? The flesh. And the flesh is not our human body, but rather it's our human nature. A human nature that we were born with. As we like to say here at Fairview, regardless of how handsome Ocean looked, regardless of how cute Hazel looked, regardless of the cute babies around us, every person born into this world is a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. And when John talks about our flesh, he's talking about our human nature apart from being redeemed by God, apart from being saved by God. And that human nature produces desires, all kind of desires. Just think about what your humanity, your sinfulness produces and desires and longs for and yearns for. Now, if you want a graphic picture, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, when Paul talks about the works of the flesh in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. And so when he talks about the works of the flesh, he talks about sexual sins. He talks about social sins. He talks about religious sins. And he talks about drinking sins. And my friends, those are basically the folders in that drawer called the lust of the flesh. You start thinking about all of the things that are in the world system because of sexual sins. Think about all of the stuff that's in our world because of social sins, because we don't get along with each other, because we don't like each other, because we look different, or we think differently, or we have different political views, etc. Think about all the mess that's in our world system because of social sins. And then he talks about drinking sins, about drunkenness, etc. And so how do these things get in the world system? It's all due to our human nature having desires and passions for things that leave God out. Think about all the things that are in the world that people crave and desire because they leave God out. John closes that drawer, opens a second drawer. It's labeled the lust of the eyes. And it has its own folders. And some of the folders are the same in the first drawer. The lust of the eyes, the the cravings, the passions, the desires, that are produced because of our eyes. David, Saul, Bathsheba, bathing. And what did it produce? Adultery, murder, and a host of other problems. Achan in Joshua 7, when they went and conquered, Achan saw a beautiful mantle 
and he saw some money, some silver, and some gold, not just one little coin, but a bunch. And what did he do? What he saw, he took. He stole. All because of his, what his eyes saw. Eve, in, in, in paradise, in that idyllic place, saw the tree and, and what it could produce. And it caused her to eat of the tree. The, the eye gate is powerful. Advertisers know that, right? <laughs> you got billboards, you got magazines, TV commercials that all appeal to the eye. I still haven't figured out what a sensual woman has to do with a Carl's Jr. hamburger. Now, I haven't. I don't know how those two go together. But in several of their commercials, they seek to get your attention. They want your eyes. And so they put this sensual woman next to a hamburger. And that's kind of stuff, kind of mess that's in the world system. And so you can imagine some of these folders would deal with pornography, raunchy TV shows. We call it adult entertainment. The eyes, the eye gate that's produced these things in the world. And John closes that drawer. He says, there's one more drawer I have to tell you about. And it's labeled the boastful pride of life. And he starts dealing with arrogance. Starts dealing with pride. But he's saying it's really our life goods that produces this pride. And many times people are arrogant and proud because of what they possess. They think they're better than the next person because their house is bigger than your house. Or their car is shinier than your car. Or they got more than what you have. And our world, the world system is filled with the product of what has been produced by pride and arrogance over our possessions. And that can lead to all kinds of wrong practices. And so, when John gives his counsel, when he says everything in the world does not come from the Father, but from the world, you can see now why he gives his counsel. What are we doing loving the things that are a result of the lust of the eyes and the, 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 the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. That file cabinet is rotten, it's stinky. It needs to be thrown out. But it's a reminder of all of the things in the world and why we shouldn't love the world. Well, John gives his last piece of counsel in verse 17. And he wants us to know and his readers to know that the world is fleeting, but the believer is forever. 
Each time John is given his counsel, there's been a contrast, a sharp contrast. When he gave his first piece of counsel, it was a contrast between loving the world and loving God. When he gave his second piece of counsel, it was the contrast between how things got in the world. Either they originated with the world or with God, one or the other. And now, as part of this third piece of counsel, there's another contrast. And it's a contrast between the temporary and that which is eternal. John, I don't think he's writing these words with joy in his heart. I think he's writing with a sense of gravity and solemnness. Trying to impress upon his readers that the world is passing away in its lust. Heartbroken that someone would want to love the world and its lust when the reality is that the world and its lust, the things in it, are passing away. They're transitory. They're, they're temporary. They're not going to last. There's something built in within it that causes it to deteriorate, to decay. And John said, already it's passing away. Earlier he had said, the darkness is passing away. Now the world, which is a part of that dark realm, is passing away. It's going by the wayside. It is not permanent. It is not going to last. It's going to be deteriorating and decaying and coming to nothing. And even though when we're tempted by the world, and we are tempted to love it, to be a friend of it, to be conformed to it, the world looks so beautiful, so attractive, so appealing, that people go after it and attach themselves to it and embrace it. But what we need to realize is the very nature of the world and its, the world system that is decay. I was reminded of this a couple of times of when our kids were still in the house. My daughter would love to leave her cup on like the TV stand or some other thing. And there would be times when I would come by and see the cup of apple juice having sat there two or three days. And that made me not want to drink apple juice anymore. Because you see the mold. Then my, my son used to love those honey buns. And some of you still love those honey buns. Those sticky buns or whatever they call them. But don't unwrap the honey bun and don't let it sit for a couple of days. Because all of a sudden you'll see some fuzzy stuff on your honey buns. So the honey bun, when it's in the wrapper and all that, if you eat it right away, it looks good. But let it sit a while. And that's the world. Oh, it might look so attractive. The, the lights might be so bright and shiny. But let it sit a while and you'll find out 
that is disgusting is the king. So on the one hand, John says, the world and its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God, he, he speaks of that individual in contrast to the world. And he says with regards to that individual, he's not talking about the one who says that he knows Christ and doesn't obey Christ's word that we saw earlier. He's not talking about the one who says he abides in the light, yet he hates his brother. No, this person is one who does the will of God. He obeys what God's will is. He knows the will of God. He follows the will of God. And he obeys the will of God. He's not perfect. But when you look at his life, here is someone who does the will of God. And we must never forget that God does have a will. And God's will is found in his word. And there are particular times that God says, my will is that you abstain from sexual immorality. God says, my will is that you give thanks in everything. So we can come to the word and know his will. And John says, here is a person who not only knows it, but does it, practices it, practices it. He's a doer of the will of God. In, in contrast to the world that passes away, this individual, which is really just the true Christian, this individual abides, remains, instead of passing away. And if that's not enough, John says, abides and remains forever. Forever. Now this is far more than saying that everyone's going to live forever. Because whether you recognize or not, everyone will live forever. It's just a matter of where you're going to live. There are going to be people who will live forever in the lake of fire. But here John is saying, here's a person who's going to abide forever. Abide forever where? In the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be with him throughout all eternity. When the new heavens and the new earth come, they will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about how wonderful, how marvelous that is to, to know that the child of God abides, not momentarily. This Christianity is not just for here on earth. This Christianity is good throughout all eternity. Yes, I can know that he walks with me and talks with me here on earth. But, but I also know that I will abide forever in his presence throughout all eternity. That's the destiny of the true Christian. And so no wonder John counsels that the world is fleeting. What are you doing loving the world? It's fleeting. But the believer abides forever. So I'll ask you the question again. Are you a worldly Christian? And, and let me be a little bit more direct. Do you love the beliefs of the world system? 
You know the world system has their beliefs, right? The, the world system says that same-sex marriage is fine. It doesn't matter what gender you are now, you can get married. Do you love? Do you attach yourself? Do you embrace the beliefs of the world system? God doesn't have anything to do with that. I don't care how you spin it. There's no way you can go to the Bible and find same-sex marriage. God instituted marriage. He instituted it from the beginning, and he created them male and female, and he said that a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. A woman, a man leaves and cleaves to a woman. The Bible says that repeatedly throughout Scripture. Do you love the values of the world system? The the, the thing that the world treasures. And and some of us demonstrate in our actions that we value their values, not God's. When it comes to raising children, Whose values are you going to follow? You're going to follow God's or are you going to follow the world's? The world will tell you that the most important thing, if your kids are involved in sports, is feed them. Make sure they do well, etc. It doesn't matter if they miss church. That's not important. What's important is that my kids excel athletically or that my kids excel academically. Or that my kids make a ton of money. That's more important. And they lose their whole soul trying to gain the world. And some of us as Christians, we are the ones who have affections and desires for the values of the world system. And what about the practices of the world system? What they do. If you are a worldly Christian, I'm not saying this, but James says you are an adulteress. Strong language, James 4.4. James addresses his readers as adulteresses because they were unfaithful to their God. They were playing on God with the things of the world. And James says, you are adulteresses. You have committed spiritual adultery. But the good news is you don't have to stay in that condition or in that situation. James in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, and this is where I want to end, gives a cure for worldliness. And I trust that each and every one of us will look at these verses and make sure that we've taken the vaccination, that we've taken the cure for worldliness. And and let me just quickly go through it and I'll end here. It starts with submitting to God, placing yourself under the authority of God, resisting the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Be miserable. Mourn. Weep. James is letting us know how serious the sin of worldliness is. Last Sunday, Stephen Neal talked about our hearts should weep over the destiny of the lost. Our hearts should weep also over our worldliness. James says, mourn. Don't be all giddy and all happy and singing praise song and you're worldly. Mourn, weep, break out into tears. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. That's the cure for worldliness. If you are a worldly Christian, I invite you to take that cure. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to turn from your sins and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that your word enlightens us concerning this forbidden love, this forbidden commandment where we're not to love the world or the things in the world. Help us, Father, to look at ourselves in the mirror of your word and take the appropriate action by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.